The following episode includes talk of alleged abuse of heinous nature. The topic may be difficult to listen to, and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. In our previous episode, we discussed the legal precedent-setting Michigan murder case of the People vs. Pond which ultimately contributed to establishing the parameters for what is now defined as justifiable homicide, not only here in Michigan, but throughout the United States and beyond. In this episode, we're heading to Big Bay, Michigan, a small community 40 minutes or so north of Marquette to examine another murder that altered legal history. This will be the final episode to follow our true crime theme of the season. We still have more episodes featuring tales of Northern Michigan's paranormal activity coming just in time for the Halloween season. On July 31st, 1952, in Big Bay, Michigan, Morris Chenoweth, the owner and bartender of the now infamous Lumberjack Tavern, was shot and killed by Lieutenant Coleman A. Peterson. Peterson had come to the tavern seeking revenge, claiming that his wife had told him she had been raped by Chenoweth. Chenoweth was shot six times by Peterson from a 9mm pistol before he could retrieve the pistol of his own that he kept under the counter of the bar. See, even before the shocking murder, the lumberjack had a long reputation for hosting unruly patrons. After being arrested for the killing, Lieutenant Peterson retained a local attorney named John D. Volker for his defense. Volker, years later, inspired by the murder and the events that were to follow, wrote the novel Anatomy of a Murder under the pen name Robert Traver. The book spent 65 weeks in a row on the bestseller list and has gone on to sell more than 4 million copies in 20 languages. In 1959, the book was transferred to the big screen and featured some of the most famous actors at the time, including Jimmy Stewart, Ben Gazzara, Lee Remick, and George C. Scott. The film, like the book that preceded it, was also very well received and earned seven Academy Award nominations. The soundtrack, composed by Duke Ellington, who was no stranger to Northern Michigan, having visited several times, even playing gigs in the Batoski area over the years, won three Grammy Awards for his contribution. The Duke himself also appeared in the movie as the character Pie-Eye. Both the novel penned by Volker and the movie mirrored several aspects of the actual case against Peterson and the killing of Barkeep Chenoweth. So much so that, in fact, in July 1960, both Dell Publishing and Columbia Pictures were sued for libel by Chenoweth's daughter, who claimed the story followed the real trial way too closely. If you have seen the movie or read the book, the similarities should be quite recognizable. Real case of murder in Big Bay. Lieutenant Peterson and his wife, Charlotte, had come to the Big Bay region in June of 1952 after Peterson returned home from North Korea and was signed to a local anti-aircraft range in the Big Bay area. The two began to frequent the Lumberjack Tavern, a local hangout for social interaction, where they would often drink and dance. Eventually, they became casual friends with Chenoweth, who had a reputation of being a foul-tempered ex-state police officer turned bar owner and tender. According to Charlotte, she had spent the evening of July 30th at the Lumberjack Inn. When she returned to the trailer she and her husband Peterson shared later that evening, she was very visibly upset, claiming Chenoweth had offered to drive her home and had pulled off instead into the woods and raped and beat her. This was not the first time Chenoweth had been accused of such behavior, 
This was not the first time Chenoweth had been accused of such behavior. Although he had never been officially charged with any priors, it was actually a juror that recalled the previous allegations against the defendant during the subsequent trial that soon followed the evening's events. One has to question the legality of such accusations from a supposedly unbiased juror during an active trial. Medical tests conducted soon after could not confirm or dispute Charlotte's claims of rape. It was immediately suggested that the alleged encounter between Chenoweth and Charlotte may have actually been consensual, and that Charlotte was only covering up the true nature of the alleged encounter with Chenoweth, who was a known womanizer, in order to avoid the to-be-expected reaction of her husband, who was also known to be a bit of a hothead. Enraged, her husband seized his loaded 9mm Luger and went to the Lumberjack Tavern, entering the restaurant just past midnight. He later claimed to have brought the gun not with the premeditated intent to shoot Chenoweth, but instead as a form of self-defense. As it was well known, the bar kept firearms on the premises in case unruly customers got out of hand. As soon as Peterson entered, he proceeded towards Chenoweth and emptied his pistol, killing the bartender on the spot. He then calmly drove home and reported his actions to the trailer park manager on duty that evening, who was also an off-duty sheriff's deputy at which time he was taken to the Big Bay Jailhouse and then soon transferred to Marquette, where he was arrested for first-degree murder. It was at that time that Peterson retained Volker, who instructed his client to plead not guilty. Volker quickly devised a plan to use a rare version of the insanity defense called irresistible impulse that had not been used in Michigan successfully since 1886 for the defense of his client. Psychiatrist Thomas Petty, while on the stand for the defense, stated that Peterson's actions that fateful night could be well considered an irresistible impulse, resulting from his wife's allegations of sexual assault. Petty testified that the anger Peterson felt upon learning of his wife's alleged encounter with Chenoweth had left Peterson in a trance-like state of mind and temporarily insane, during which time he was unable to distinguish right from wrong and as a result, unaccountable for his actions that evening. Therefore, he could not be convicted of murder. The prosecution argued Peterson had knowingly and premeditatedly killed Chenoweth out of jealousy and revenge, regardless of whether the encounter between his wife and Chenoweth was consensual or rape, as Charlotte still maintained. Although it only took the jury four hours to deliberate before returning with the verdict of not guilty on September 23, 1952, the jury's first vote was 8-4 to four in favor of a guilty verdict, but that one juror yet again prevailed in persuading the other jurors to come to a final verdict of not guilty. Two days later, Peterson was again evaluated by a psychiatrist that declared he was no longer insane and in no need of institutionalization, at which time he was released by Judge Charles O. Arch, Sr., who had presided over the trial. Peterson now a free man, returned to the small trailer he shared with his wife. And spoiler alert here, true to the fictional account in the book and movie, the two skipped town, leaving their bill with Volker unpaid. Peterson and his wife, not surprisingly, soon divorced. It has been said that Volker, quote, made lemonade out of the lemons Peterson handed him by using the case as the basis for the anatomy of a murder book and movie, end quote. 
I just watched this movie maybe three years ago, and I really enjoyed it. There was always something really cool about seeing places you have lived in or nearby in a movie. And it also happens to be a very good film, especially for the time when it was made. You should check it out if you have not seen the film, and be sure to watch for the similarities, because all of those involved in the actual murder have a counterpart in the movie. Volker changes the plot considerably for the sake of art, but that only winds up contributing to the great storyline. And his life often imitates art, both the film and actual trial were responsible for making history in the respective fields. When it came time to film the movie, it was decided to shoot almost the entire film on location in Marquette County, where the actual crime had occurred. This was something that had never been done before in any major blockbuster, especially in the sticks of northern Michigan. Up until then, films were shot on sound stages in Hollywood or at locales that were already available to the studios to keep production costs down. Can you imagine the excitement among the locals in the days just prior to the beginning of production of the film when private planes carrying Jimmy Stewart, the beautiful Lee Remick, along with the rest of the star-studded cast, first arrived in Ishpeming, Michigan. The event was even broadcasted on The Ed Sullivan Show. During the filming of the movie, the stars were often fixtures at the local restaurants, hotels, and nightclubs around the Marquette area. Jimmy Stewart himself caused quite a stir one evening after having caught some local fresh fish, which he had the chef at a nearby restaurant cook for his dinner, as patrons at neighboring tables watched in excitement. And the online images of Lee Remick, and the online images of Lee Remick, one of Hollywood's top leading beauties, seated in a chair with the Ishpeming men's ski jump team standing around her, looking quite smitten, are surreal. Guests stopping into local hotels, bars, and other venues in the area, including Marquette's famous Landmark Hotel, during the making of the film, were often surprised to find Duke Ellington either jamming with the local musicians or playing and singing solo upon entry. It was reported Ellington wrote part of the movie's award-winning score while sitting at the piano in Ishpeming's Mather Inn Lounge. Although the famous musician celebrated his 60th birthday during the making of the film, that did not stop him from accepting an invitation to perform Take the A-Train at the annual spring dance of the Delta Sigma Nu sorority at a nearby northern local Michigan University. Another first for films at that time was the fact that some of the scenes were shot inside the Lumberjack Tavern where the actual murder had occurred. Although the scene depicting the murder in the movie, along with several other scenes in Anatomy of Murder, were filmed just up the road inside what is now the Thunder Bay Inn, a dining room had been added to the inn prior to production to facilitate filming and to follow the movie's plotline. Once finished, the film was previewed on June 18, 1959 in Chicago, a mere 21 days after filming had finished, setting yet another record for a big-budget film. The film was immediately banned by Mayor Daly for the use of foul language, and it really was just a few specific words, including one word, laughably and currently relevant, which was the word contraceptive. Mayor Daly was sued and lost, and the film was allowed to be played. A lawsuit centered around the filming of a famous trial. Ironic, huh? Time magazine felt that the film was well-paced, well-acted, and that the explicit language was warranted within the film's context. The film debuted nationally in Detroit to critical acclaim, and like the book, it became an instant hit. 
The movie was expected to gross $250,000, but instead brought in more than $5.5 million. That would be equivalent to $45 million in today's money. Another irony was the highest paid actor in the movie was a real-life attorney and not an actor at all, Joseph Welch, who played the part of the judge. Years earlier, in 1954, when he was appointed chief counsel for the U.S. Army, while it was under investigation for communist activities by Senator Joseph McCarthy, Welch first became famous for berating Senator McCarthy during the hearings, saying, quote, Have you no sense of decency, sir? The real case that inspired Anatomy of Murder is still cited in courtrooms, in legal debates, and in law schools, nationally and internationally to this day. But Irresistible Impulse, as established in 1886 and presented successfully in the Peterson case, does not seem to be so easily definable, nor a guarantee for acquittal, as it was in the case related to Anatomy of a Murder. A case tried barely a year later in 1960 cites statements including, The impulse defense can be pled only under diminished responsibility, not insanity and is only a partial defense to murder, such as manslaughter. It can be left, however, to the judge's discretion for both sentence length and the option of committal versus incarceration. Irresistible impulse was added to the McNaughton rule as a basis for acquittal. I'm neither an attorney nor a legal expert, but I do remember that irresistible impulse was the defense that got Lorena Bobbitt her acquittal in the 1994 case against her husband. Ouch. It is stated in print that at one point the Michigan Supreme Court did accept irresistible impulse. This is precedent. Anatomy of a Murder is ranked as the seventh best courtroom drama ever. And no trip to Big Bay is complete without stopping at a few of the sites made famous by the film Anatomy of a Murder. The Thunder Bay Inn, originally built in 1911 as a warehouse and general store by Henry Ford, who owned almost all of Big Bay at one time. The inn became the Big Bay Hotel in 1944. Ford utilized the hotel and the rest of the town as a retreat and as a stopover for executives and VIPs en route to and from Alberta, Michigan, another of the towns he owned in the northern wilderness. After the filming of the movie was completed, the inn was then renamed, appropriately enough, the Thunder Bay Inn. Guests can stay in any of the 13 suites, all decorated with historical themes. The hotel also serves as a bit of a museum, housing several pieces of memorabilia from the film and the actual murder. Just down the street, the Lumberjack Tavern, site of the real-life murder of Channelworth, where bullet holes can still be seen in the rustic walls of the bar. Although a bit morbid, it is hard to resist a photo op while lying within the red outline on the floor where the unfortunate Chenilworth fell dead. It is also rumored that if you ask politely, you may be shown the gun the doomed barkeep was going for in defense as he was being chased and shot by the murderous Peterson. If there happens to be a band playing in the Lumberjack Tavern when you visit, take a close look at the guitar player, Singer. Several YouTube videos will show the actor and Michigan native Jeff Daniels has been known to frequent and perform at the bar. There are even clips of him performing a famous dance called the Big Bay Shuffle. For those diehard Anatomy of a Murder fans, pardon the pun, there are sites on the internet that will lead you to several other locales made famous in the movie 
in and around the towns of Marquette and Ishpeming. Volcker himself was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1959 by then-Governor G. Menon, otherwise known as Soapy Menon Williams. Volcker served until 1960, when the success of the book and film allowed him to retire to Michigan's UP to do what he loved best, fish and write. He passed away in 1991 in Ispeming, Michigan, the same town where he was born 87 years prior. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. And please follow us and watch for our next episodes, which deal with Michigan's paranormal past. <laughs>